You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, it's summer, so you know what that means. What does that mean, Michael? The summer blockbuster. I don't know. There's so many redos of old movies. I'm just not very interested, especially like the new Jurassic Park. I like the new Jurassic Park. Is it good? Okay. Well, the first one was so like intellectual and had all these techno-ethical questions that the last one really let me down, but maybe I'll go see it. Did you see? No, the new one. There's actually some some new stuff. It's good. I think you'll you'll enjoy it. I saw it has Jeff Goldblum's character, and he was the big... He was the big thinker he, he's in the, the first big, one. He's one the big them. Paul. And Chris Pratt, who, of course, is playing, I don't know the name of the character, <laughs> but he's also in Guardians of the Galaxy. See, those Marvel comics, I think they they do it pretty well. DC, I think, does a terrible job with their mega blockbuster films. You saw the new Superman? Maybe it was years ago? No, I don't think I did. Was it good? No. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. You know, for a guy who, you know, he wants to stand up for truth, justice, and the American way, he destroyed a ton of buildings. Like, the entire entire place is just destroyed. I feel like they should just reboot the whole thing. Yeah, what would be a different role Superman could take besides just destroying buildings? Ah, this is tough, Dan. Do you have any ideas? You know what? Like, and maybe this is just my bias, but I think Superman would be a good social studies teacher. That's interesting. Yeah, because what does Superman stand for? Truth, justice, and the American way. That's like a pretty good curriculum right there, right? So truth to have students like analyze what truth is and credibility and reliability of sources and information and, and what you can know in the world, right? That's a good that's a good part of a curriculum. And I feel like it levels the playing field because Superman doesn't have super teaching ability, right? Maybe he can grade faster than anyone else, but it's not like his superpowers really relate to that. It'd be him in a whole new setting. That's interesting, Dan. Right, because Superman has awkward human moments just like conversing with people. So I'm sure he'd fumble all over himself trying to get students to... Would he teach us Superman or Clark Kent? Uh, That's a good question. I don't know. Probably Superman just to make this whole thing work. Yeah, yeah. But then the other part, the the justice part of the curriculum is such a a good part of, I I think, what social studies should be, right? That we seek out to make a more just world and learning history can help us do that. That is fascinating. Interesting. Superman for democracy in the American way. Yeah. I dig it. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. And I think the ways that we you know, actually do social studies is the resources we use, the approaches we have are all very important. And we're going to learn about one today that not only will you hear about on this podcast, but right after you're done with this podcast, you can go order a brand new book that will teach you all about this. And so we have three guests that we're going to welcome in to the podcast who wrote a book. And so we would like to welcome in our three guests. First, our previous and returning guest, which means she is now officially a friend of the pod. Annalisa Halverson, and then also her co-authors, David Harris and Paul Dane. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be back. It's great to have you all on. Can each of you just tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education before we learn about this tremendous book that you've written and the approach and resources that it makes available? I was born in Chicago, grew up there, and I met my wife in public high school there. 
Want to hear my pickup line? It was Cuban oh, Missile yes. Crisis, yes. October 1962. I called and said, if we're still around Saturday night, want to go out? She Aww. said, yes. It worked like a charm. <laughs> I taught high school for five years at James Madison Memorial High School in Madison. She was an elementary teacher. I served in the U.S. Army Reserve Intelligence from 68 to 74. We moved to Michigan in 1976, and I taught at Oakland University. From there, I was hired at the Oakland ISD in Michigan, and I was the social studies education consultant for Oakland County, Michigan. Then I was hired as professor of social studies education at University of Michigan. We retired from there. So how did I get involved in education? The first most significant event I remember in getting prepared to be a teacher occurred at uh, Wisconsin. A new professor, Fred Newman, was just hired from Harvard Graduate School of Education. He did a guest lesson and he introduced the Harvard Social Studies Project also called the Harvard Public Issues Series. And there was a booklet that introduced it all that he used with us called Taking a Stand. And it transformed all of my thinking about social studies education. It introduced me to the idea that students should be engaged in their courses by their teachers in reasoned discussions of public issues, value-based questions. And I took that idea from that one class with me through my entire career. It's what I wrote my doctoral dissertation about. And my first attempt to translate all of this into practice occurred in a ninth grade class that I was teaching in Madison. And we were on the unit for reconstruction. And I introduced the idea of Senator Ross of Kansas voting to impeach or not to impeach, actually, to convict in the U.S. Senate Andrew Johnson and remove him from office. So we read some things about it. We talked a little bit about it. And then I posed the question, should Senator Ross have voted to convict the president? And what'd they say? Long silence. Student eventually raises his hand and says, hey, when are we going to learn something in here? <laughs> and I was crestfallen, but I said, well, what would you like to learn? And he said, well, last year, Mr. Wasson told us all the presidents and when they were in off. I said, who came after Benjamin Harrison? I don't remember. Okay, we're going to continue with Senator Ross and the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. And I never gave it up. I did, however, want to go back to school after teaching for a while because I wasn't sure about what to do with value questions in the curriculum, how to treat values. And there were some really good thinkers on the faculty in Madison. And so I went back to graduate school to learn about that. Well, I'm glad you brought up that project. There's such tremendous work around social studies curriculum done in the 60s and 70s and all these projects and courses were created that we really could learn so much from and I feel like a lot of them are forgotten and particularly you know the taking a stand and Harvard curriculum that was developed and, and gained some popularity also courses like Makos which really looked at mankind and humankind's role in the world from all these different angles what would you say is is your kind of takeaway in seeing the curriculum change over the years do you feel like the some of the things that are happening today are, are really related to what happened back then or is there kind of a different focus no i think you're quite right that time was a time of curricular ferment and that there was great support financial support from the federal government you mentioned makos that triggered the political backlash and ever since that backlash there's been very little funding for this kind of curricular innovation 
especially in social studies. My experience is that there's never been a time like that since, either as a matter of public policy, especially from Washington, or on, on the part of teachers seeking out that kind of innovative, um, intellectually rigorous curriculum. Well, and I, I'll just say this, and I know we need to introduce everybody, but it's, it is fascinating because I know the first time someone really suggested to me an out-of-the-box curriculum, I didn't know what to think because I was so used to the standards and the kind of standard curriculum that covered wars and elections. So when someone suggested maybe we should study, Mark Helmsing brought up so many during it, whether it's study the ways that Snow White helped us think about the world. I just couldn't imagine it within the way schools are structured now. But all we have to do is turn back to those 60s and 70s when there was a lot of innovation happening that I think can help people be better citizens, which is the point of social studies, right? I agree with you. It was, I think, a high watermark for curricular innovation, but I don't think it ever percolated to the schools on a large scale. My experience was that few teachers had adopted those programs, MACOS, the Harvard Project, the Amherst American History Project, and many more, all outstanding programs, but they didn't filter in. Well, thank you so much, David Harris, for telling us a little bit of your background. Paul Dane, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and story in education? Sure, I'd be happy to. Both my wife and I grew up outside Detroit in a city called East Detroit, and we both went to the same high school. We ended up going both going to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. I was a political science major. She was a history major, and we spent a few years teaching outside Kalamazoo before we moved back to the southeastern part of the state. And I taught then for, for 25 years, 26 years, in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. So it was uh, altogether a teaching career of about 31 years, primarily teaching American government and advanced placement American government. I did teach some ninth grade science, and David uh, reminds me of the Harvard Project. When I was teaching ninth grade civics, I should say, at uh, Bloomfield Hills Middle School, I built my civics class around the Harvard series. And I still have my uh, taking the stand pamphlet guarded closely <laughs> in uh, cellophane because it is a classic and it was inspirational to me, just like my social studies inspiration was Mr. McCauley, my 11th grade American history teacher at, at East Detroit High School, happened to be my wife's same history teacher and unlike so many teachers that we experienced during the uh, 50s and 60s, he had an open classroom where he allowed dialogue back and forth between teachers and students. And I was really invigorated by that and probably wouldn't be where I am now or wouldn't have done what I have done w without him. So I'm very much indebted to him. And I would like to just second what David said about some of the innovations. I'm not to put a damper on some of the great projects that you've already discussed, but having served as a social studies chairman of my high school for a number of years, I was always quite disturbed by the lack of innovation within an outstanding high school. The students did well in spite of the lack of innovation, but there were so many opportunities to do new and different things. And one of the things I did, I brought David's Reasoning with Democratic Values, of the first edition back in 1985, I brought that into our social studies classrooms, our history classrooms, and I also used several stories in my American government classrooms. And it was so well received by students, 
it offered a real challenge and a real opportunity to think about historical figures in a different light, where you could determine, perhaps for yourself, what kind of decisions they were making and how it influenced the country. And I've worked with David, and I've worked with Adelisa on some other projects. This was really a thrill to do this, and it's good to see them. All right, and on to our episode 64 star of our most listened to episode, Annalisa Halverson. Thank you, listeners. Um, Annalisa Halverson, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, went to college in Northfield, Minnesota at Carleton College, and then I earned my teaching license in elementary education from McAllister College, also in Minnesota. And then my first teaching job was with David's wife, Marsha Harris, at Cranbrook Schools outside Detroit, Michigan, where I taught for you. And during that time, I, I did some curriculum writing for the Michigan, hired by David Harris and Paul. That, that was the project I worked on with Paul, where we wrote lessons to accompany the standards, socially standards. And that was really, it was, it was a great project. And it really helped me understand the standards and understand the ways in which they could be interpreted and, and taught in, in interesting ways. Then I went and got my PhD from University of Michigan and studied elementary social studies, the history of elementary social studies. And then I was lucky enough to get a position at Michigan State, right down the road from Ann Arbor. And it's hard to believe I'm starting my 13th year as a professor at Michigan State, where I've really done, really fortunate to do, collaborate with a lot of really great people. I've worked a lot with speaking of innovative curriculum, trying to, you know, thinking about creating innovative curriculum and studying it. I've done work on project-based learning. That's been really exciting, thinking about the ways in which we can integrate different domains in order to engage children and to get them to be committed to and caring about the world and uh, making a difference in terms of civic impact. I've done a lot of work with historical and using evidence. And this project stems from kind of an early interest I had when I was teaching with David's wife, Marsha, about how young kids can think about moral reasoning and when I was teaching with Marsha as a kindergarten teacher, she would sometimes pose these questions to the kids, these sort of moral ethical dilemmas. And I thought, this is kind of an interesting thing to be doing, and this is not part of the standards. But what she was doing was trying to get little kids to think about, to truly tap into their moral reasoning. She would pose dilemmas, and then the, the, the answer wasn't so much as important as the reasoning. And we would listen really careful to the reasoning kids would give. And in that reasoning, we would hear, you know, kids would invoke values about truth and fairness and freedom and equality. And young kids really care about those issues and those values very deeply. And they can apply them in a, a lot of ways. We would often have to teach them as what is fair is not what you want, you know, but what is what is fair for everyone involved. But as, as I began seeing that young kids are really capable of this, I became really intrigued by moral reasoning. Again, not moral action, but how do people reason about their, their, their decisions? And so that led me to teach some of the chapters from the first edition of this book in my methods classes. And then when David and Paul invited me to join this project, I mean, I was just, just, just over the moon excited about the opportunity to write and rewrite some of the stories, write new stories and really use history as a way to think about developing students' moral reasoning. And so without further ado, we should tell everybody the name of this book, and then you guys can introduce us to the ideas in it and what teachers could take away, this approach that you're bringing to social studies classrooms. And so the book is called Reasoning with Democratic Values 2.0, Ethical Issues in American History. So... What are we going to learn? How are we going to learn to be good teachers if we use some of the ideas and, and lessons and resources in this book? Well, 
I think it was an inspired decision to invite both Paul and Anna to work on the second edition. The second edition or new edition published in June of this year of Reasoning with Democratic Values is at least 75% new material. There are 39 chronologically organized chapters, and each one um, poses an ethical problem embedded in the content of American history. The idea is that teachers in each unit of study could choose one of those chapters and one of the stories to pursue an ethical topic in depth in the context of the chapter. So the, the books are designed to be supplemental texts for U.S. history teachers. In the second edition, we aimed a little bit higher. The readability is a little bit more challenging. The first edition was targeted at middle school, basically eighth grade and high school U.S. history students. This second edition is also, but we think from our experience with piloting some of this and responses from readers that it would, and also in our own courses at the university, the chapters would be highly engaging to undergraduates taking U.S. history as well. So we now think that we have an audience of middle schools with middle school students who are reading at grade level, high school students, and undergraduates too, taking U.S. history courses. As I said, there's 75% new content in the new edition. It came together over a long period of time. The first edition was published in 1985, written by Alan Lockwood at the University of Wisconsin and me, and it's still in print. And it was pretty well received, but the new edition takes uh, some of those stories, but adds um, the vast majority of the, of the content is, is new. We've also changed many of the learning activities. We've added some. Paul and Anna can talk about the changes that we've made in that. But each story revolves around a key ethical problem, has 75% new content. There are some of the original stories from the first edition, but those two have been modified. The stories, each chapter is embedded in an era of American history. The idea is that a teacher in each unit of study in an American history course could select one of the chapters and have students study in depth an ethical issue pertinent to that time in American history. For example, just to give you a sampling of the chapter topics, should Thomas Jefferson have freed his, should Robert E. Lee have accepted command of the Union armies when it was offered? Should Juan Seguin, a Texan, have agreed to fight against the United States and on the Mexican, with the Mexican army? Should my neighbors here in northern Michigan, Bonnie and John Raines, have burglarized an FBI office in 1971 in suburban Philadelphia to obtain records of illegal activity by the FBI? Should former Congressman John Conyers continue to introduce a bill in the U.S. Congress for reparations to be paid to African Americans? Each chapter is accompanied by a set of learning activities. One of them, of course, asks students to take the position on the ethical issue posed, such as the ones we just mentioned. There are other activities. Paul and Anna will describe what those learning activities are. And there's a detailed instructor's manual that provides 
clear guidance for teachers who want to use those learning activities when working with one of the chapters. There are a number of topics that we didn't get to include. For example, I wanted to do one about psychology professor Harry Harlow's experimentation with monkeys. We wanted to do one at one time about draft resistance during the Vietnam War. We thought about doing a chapter on gun ownership. At one point, I thought it might be good to do a chapter about controversy over monuments to John Calhoun, former vice president of the United States at Yale University. But we went through a very systematic process, and we took in many considerations, which democratic values are entailed by the chapter, how central is the topic of the ethical issue to the era under consideration, how engaging would it be to young people. And there were other criteria we used, and we actually voted and ranked them and used that process to select the 39 chapters that finally appeared in the books. So what are the democratic values that you are, are looking to promote? So the democratic values that are embedded in the chapters are the authority, common good, diversity, equality, liberty, life, loyal pro property, and truth. What we acknowledge is that each of these values is often interpreted and defined differently. At their root, each of them is aligned with the democratic creed. A democracy has a position on each of these values. For example, equality. Our constitution guarantees equal protection of the laws. It wouldn't be American democracy without the value of equality. So we define each one. For example, authority. A value concerning what rules or people should be obeyed and the consequences for disobedience. Loyalty. A value concerning obligation to the people, traditions, ideas, and organizations of importance in one's life. Equality, again. A value concerning whether people should be treated in the same way. And we have such definitions for each. The idea is that students go beyond the labels, beyond the definitions, to applying the meaning of the values to particular instances, to particular cases that are embedded in the chapters. For example, it's obvious that the value of property and the value of equality come to bear with the issue of whether Jefferson should have freed his slaves. The value of loyalty is pertinent to the Robert E. Lee story. I really love the idea of examining U.S. history through different values because obviously what it does is most of these values aren't about the past, they're about the present, that, that we are really wrestling with who are we and why is history important for what we're going to do going forward. I'm curious, for those of you that have, have taught these in classes before, what, what are some of the, the possibilities and challenges of doing this kind of work with, with students, whether it's from middle school to college? You know, I'd, I'd just like to insert that there is a significant challenge, both in the classroom using these materials and also writing them. Because we, we bring to the classroom and we brought to our writing our own preconceived ideas, our own values. And one of the things that I thought was very important was to be able to look at an historical figure 
and the ethical question and try as much as you can to be objective in your presentation of the materials, just like you would as if, as if you were a teacher in a classroom, so as to allow the students to make their own decisions. But that, that raises a, a couple of dilemmas. The first dilemma is you can go overboard in trying to be fair and not tell an accurate story, just as you could show your bias in support of your own position. We had some good checks on that because as we wrote these stories over four years, we shared drafts back and forth continuously and our own checks and balances were between the three of us. And we also, during that process, were able to consult outside people. I was just looking through my uh, three by five cards and I have about eight or nine different university scholars uh, historical scholars that I consulted with on some of our stories when we were just my own research and that of Anna's and David's kind of drew a blank. So we went beyond and we consulted authorities that would help us. And in many cases, some of the authorities, James McPherson from Princeton, uh, it comes to mind right off. He said, you know, I really don't know the answer to that question. It was about whether or not slaves were drafted during the Civil War. And he said, but I can tell you a guy who I know will know the answer to it. So he turned me on to a professor from the University of North Carolina. And this back and forth and research was continuous over four years. And so it was really a valuable experience. But the idea of trying to be objective and fair is the same one that I experienced in a classroom to try to be able to be as fair as you can to the students. It reminds me of, we've had a numerous episodes recently on inquiry. Inquiry is kind of the, the hot buzzword in social studies now with the C3 framework and the inquiry design model that's put forward. And I, I do see some similarities between the two for people that are interested in using that inquiry design model because what's, what the inquiry design model encourages you also to do is to try to find authentic, interesting questions that kids want to answer. And I think that seems to be the same thing that you all have done. So this could, if, you're, if your school is doing the C3, it seems like you could pop some of these lessons right in with it. Just one comment about inquiry. We could speak about inquiry broadly, in which empirical questions are posed and investigated, and hypotheses are formulated, tested, and supported with evidence or rejected for lack of evidence as opposed to normative or values-based inquiry. And what we're doing primarily here in, with these books is focusing on ethical deliberation, not the empirical fact-based historical inquiry. Although we have built in a learning activity for each chapter that asks the students to investigate a historical question, we make the distinction in the book of is and ought, that you can't move from is to ought. What is true is different than what is fair and just. So I'm making the distinction between moral inquiry, if you would, and empirical inquiry, both of which are certainly going all the way back to the period we talked about earlier, germane to good socials. But reasoning with democratic values is primarily value-based. Dan, in regards to your question about what it's like to teach these, you know, I taught a couple chapters from the first edition, which was published in 1985 when I was teaching 
social studies methods courses with David at University of Michigan. And I vividly remember teaching one of the chapters, Stealing North, which was in this first edition as well as the second edition. And it's about whether or not Richard Wright should have participated in a ticket scheme in Jim Crow South in order to steal from the owner of of a movie theater he was working for in order to raise enough funds to be able to escape Jim Crow South and move up north to pursue his, his dreams as a writer. And it was fascinating leading this discussion with a group of prospective elementary teachers, one of whom was a former police officer. And he would not, he did not budge in his, his belief that under no circumstances is it ever, ever right to steal, ever to break the law, even in this situation. And he had so many of his colleagues, you know, trying to get him to look at the perspective, look at the fact that in Jim Crow South, Richard Wright didn't have the same rights as whites in that period. And he could not take the, he could not look at it through a situational lens in that regard. And so it was, it was quite vivid. It was, it really showed, you know, the, the challenges of teaching this. Can I interject, since Anna brought up the Richard Wright story called Stealing North in, in the books, when I was teaching high school, I used that story too. I didn't say before, but reasoning with democratic values is cognitive developmental values education. It draws heavily on Kohlbergian theory of stage development, where children can mature from reasoning in a way that is completely self-interested to conformity to expectations and local group norms to having principles and standards about treating people uh, as ends in themselves and not as means to ends. Anyhow, my point about Stealing North is that Kohlbergian theory was brought home to me by a 16-year-old. We were talking about the Richard Wright story, and we got conventional reasoning from a lot of the kids. No, he shouldn't do it because he could get caught and sent to a chain gang. Yeah, he should do this because here's his chance to make some money and get out of the South. No, he shouldn't do it because his mother will be disappointed in him that he became a thief. No, he shouldn't do it because he'll be turning against his fellow employees. And then this. No, he shouldn't do it because it's against the law. I'm thinking of honest police officer. And people should respect the law. And a response from a 16-year-old. Yes, that's true. But government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. And in the state of Mississippi in the 1920s, African-Americans were disenfranchised. There was no consent of the governed. So Richard had no obligation to comply with the laws of the state of Mississippi because they were adopted by people who didn't represent him. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that's the type of social studies lesson where they should start playing movie music at the end of the class. And <laughs> everyone walks out. That's like what we all want to happen is those discussions that that build on the, you know, ideas throughout history and and wrestle with moral development. That's really cool. So I actually just ordered the book. Now, we had this conversation today, which is great. And I'm going to go, you know, when I get the book, I'm excited to read through it. Is there any guidance on how I can use this in my classroom when it picks up in, in September? Well, the, that's uh, the beauty of the instructor's manual. The first 44 pages of the instructor's manual take you through that question in great depth. And the pleasure of talking to an AP U.S. history teacher last week. And he was most impressed with those 44 pages because it gives you really a good idea. Even in an AP class of how to fit the chapters in, how to build 
uh, sound discussion about those within any classroom. So yes, I, I really uh, think that the instructor's manual sets that out in many, many different ways. We could go into the various aspects of that, but I'm sure you don't have time to, to do that. But what we added many things to the instructor's manual that the publisher didn't allow us to put it in the book because of word count. And so there are many things in the instructor's manual that we ended up putting on the website, which I think is also a very valuable resource for teachers. And what is that website? It's www.rdv2.org. I think it's also referenced in the brochure, the publisher's brochure. And of course, we will link all of these websites to our show notes. So if you're hearing this and you didn't catch anything, everything will be linked in our show notes. In what way have we made an effort to make this useful, uh, applicable in classrooms by teachers? And for each learning activity, there are clear guidelines or guidance provided in the instructor's manual. But one of the pitfalls of this approach to conducting discussions is the assumption that students already know how to do this that they already know procedurally the skills of effective discussion. And that's simply not true. So one of the things we focus on is the necessity of teaching them what the skills of discussion are, what it is to participate productively and respectfully in a discussion. We also have a number of suggestions for discussion formats, and there's specific responses to help guide the teacher in fielding all of the instructional activities. So I think as Paul tells us, the instructor's manual is the key resource for how to translate these books into practice. Wait, so discussions aren't just people yelling at each other across the room? That's exactly. not how they're, they're, they're supposed to be? Isn't it's it exact. whoever uses caps lock? Isn't that the... Uh... <laughs> We, we try to make the point of what negative we, we are specific about it. What are positive contributions to discussion? What are negative contributions? And we have some material about how you can assess the quality of discussions, too, as a teacher, both assessing oh, cool. the performance of a group and the performance of individuals within a group. That's fantastic. And intentionally focusing on that skill of discussion is obviously a very applicable and important characteristic for democratic citizens. Dan often talks about how teachers need to be taught how to lead discussions. Yeah, I've been working on <laughs> yeah. that one for, for a little while now. I, yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention too is that, you know, the heart of each of these chapters is really the learning activity that's expressing your reasoning, where that's the, the question, the, the issue is asked, the reader is asked to consider how their response to that. And in the instructor's manual, there's responses on each side of the issue. And so the teacher very well, very well might agree with one side of the issue more than the other, but it at least gives the teacher both sides of that. And that can enable the teacher then to probe and ask further questions, you know, have you considered this, but what about this issue of equality and how does it apply here and so forth. So those bullet points that list each side of the issue reasonings for each side of the issue can then be used to further the discussion because it very well may, might be through that all the students actually come down on one side of the issue. Yes, you know, Thomas Jefferson should have freed his slaves or in another one. It's, uh, yeah, that's one I feel strongly about. Another one about, we did a story on the, the baker in, in Colorado who refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. 
So the question is, should Jack Phillips be free to refuse to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple? And so, you know, whether or not where the teachers comes down on that side of the issue, to enable to the participants to really engage in substantive conversation, there's reasons on both sides. So at least they could be, because I think people get better at discussion when they actually do consider another side of an issue and really, you know, try to try to see it from that perspective, even if, you know, their mind's not changed. Is there anything else that you want to hit on that we haven't that you think would be good or? I'd just like to uh, say that this book has adult application. I've given these books to my uh, friends down here in Bradenton, Florida, and it's really interesting how they've gotten into these and how they raise questions, even on the golf course, how they're raising questions about uh, the ethical issues. So it, it does have adult application and it's great for dinner parties. David uh, came down last March, and I had three couples over, and we went through a story, crime after crime, and we posed the questions and had a wonderful discussion. I may add that a little bit of wine, a Michigan wine, too, didn't hurt the discussion at all, but uh, they really appreciated it, and those three couples now have pretty much finished reading the book. Wow. Great for dinner parties. Yeah. <laughs> I want to add, too, that the writing of these books was a remarkable educational experience for each of us, reviewing each other's work, the actual challenges of composition, the research. Sometimes it was primary research. I went to a meeting of Japanese-American veterans in the city of Chicago to seek out veterans of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team that figure in the story about Japanese internment during the Second World War. And that was thrilling to make contact with some of them and some of their children and spouses and to get firsthand information to include in the chapters. I interviewed the Rangers who burglarized the FBI office and got insights that I would never have been able to get. When we were writing the story about the Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, I went to the FDR library in upstate New York, in Hyde Park, and I told the research librarians what I was up to, and I needed information about that episode in American history. And they found for me telephone transcripts between Secretary of State Cordell Hall and Secretary of the Treasury uh, Henry Morgenthau, where they were conflicted with each other about whether safe harbor should be provided to these refugees aboard the German ship. Morgan wow. trying to argue that they should. And I would never have been able to know any of that if I didn't get to the primary source of the transcript of the phone conversations. So it was a fascinating labor of love for me. And I learned a great deal from my colleagues and certainly from the process of researching the stories. There's also a tremendous documentary on that that PBS produced years ago. Uh, America and the Holocaust, I think was the, the main title of it, that really goes through that story. It's an incredible story. I want to thank, before we close out, you two guys for doing this. I really commend you for what you're using this new technology to educate teachers and to devote yourselves to this and give of your time for this. It's admirable, and I thank you. I do as well. Thanks. Yep, yeah. Hey, that's two weeks in a row. We've got commendations at the end of the episode. That's nice.
Well, we we really appreciate having you all on and your stories of both the pro- research process of the book and how to teach it and all the ideas and theory that went behind it. Really, I think it will help educators think about things they can do in their classroom. Of course, we will have all of the resources in the show notes that we mentioned in the episode. But the book, again, is called Reasoning with Democratic Values 2.0, Ethical Issues in American History. And the website is rdv2.org. So thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Mike, it was a pleasure. Yeah, great question. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat about democratic values, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, of course, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you go over to Apple Podcasts, click on our podcast and scroll down a little bit, it'll show you all the five-star reviews, and we would love for you to add one there. And we're going to read you a quick one today, because we always promise we will read them on the air. <laughs> Olivia episode story, and it's been a couple months, but she said, I found this podcast on a list of resources that my professor provided for a course in our teacher education program. The material is extremely interesting and relevant to those who are or want to become social studies teachers. I like how the podcast gives concrete examples of what teachers can do to promote a more inclusive curriculum, as well as current problems with curriculum. The hosts are very insightful and bring on excellent guests. Yeah, that's us. Each episode, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to create this podcast. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, Olivia episode story, for writing that review. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.